Robert Norman Bob Ross was born October 29th, 1942 and died July 4th, 1995. He was an American painter, art instructor, and television host. He was widely known as the creator and host of The Joy of Painting, an instructional television program that aired from 
Ross and his second wife, Jane, had a son named Morgan, who was also an accomplished painter. In 1993, Jane died from cancer, and Ross did not remarry. His military career. Ross enlisted in the United States Air Force at 18 years old and served as a medical records technician. He eventually rose to the rank of Master Sergeant and served as the first sergeant of the U.S. Air Force Clinic at Eelson Air Force Base in Alaska, where he first saw the snow and mountains that later became recurring themes in his artwork. He developed his quick painting technique art for sale during brief daily work breaks, having held military positions that required him to be, in his own words, tough and mean, and the guy who makes you scrub the latrine guy who makes you make your bed, the guy who screams at you for being late to work, Ross decided that if he ever left the military, he would never scream again. His career as a painter While staying in Alaska, Ross was working as a part-time bartender when he discovered a TV show called The Magic of Oil Painting, hosted by German painter Bill Alexander. Ross studied with Alexander and afterwards discovered that he was able to earn more from selling his artwork than his position in the Air Force. Ross retired from the Air Force after 20 years of service, having the rank of Master Sergeant, and became famous worldwide creating and hosting the TV program, The Joy of Painting. Before the show launched, Ross tried to promote his painting technique, but was met with little interest. He also 
had to find ways to cut back on spending. So he decided to have his hair permed just to save money on haircuts. The perm hairstyle was not comfortable for Ross, but it became an iconic feature of his image and brand. The show had its first run from January 11th, 1983 to May 17th, 1994, but reruns still continue to appear in many broadcast areas and countries, including the PBS-oriented network, CREATE. During each half-hour segment, Ross would instruct viewers in oil painting using a quick study technique from the imagination that used a limited palette of paints and broke down the process into simple steps. Art critic Myra Shore compared him to Fred Rogers, host of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, noting that Ross's soft voice and the slow pace of his speech were similar. Ross later found success in building a $15 million business by creating his own line of art supplies and how-to books, and also offering painting classes taught by instructors trained in the Bob Ross method. In a 1990 interview, Ross mentioned that all his paintings were donated to PBS stations. His earnings came from sales of his Dorney books and 100 videotapes, the total to that date, as well as profits from some 150 Bob Ross trained teachers and a line of art materials sold through a national supplier. Ross also talked about the donated paintings on the show Towering Glacier, episode number 2341, saying they would help the station out. Ross also filmed wildlife, squirrels in particular usually from his garden. Small animals often 
appeared on The Joy of Painting. Even during some of his trickier works, as he would often take in injured or abandoned squirrels and other wildlife. His painting technique. Ross used the wet on wet oil painting technique in which the painter continues adding paint on top of still wet paint rather than waiting a lengthy amount of time to allow each layer of paint to dry. From the beginning, the program kept the selection of tools and colors simple so that viewers would not have to make large investments in expensive equipment. Ross frequently recommended odorless paint thinner, also known as odorless mineral spirits, for brush cleaning. Combining the wet painting method with the use of large one and two inch brushes as well as painting knives allowed Ross to paint trees, clouds, mountains, and water in a matter of seconds. Each painting would start with simple strokes that appeared as nothing more and smudges of color. As he added more and more strokes, the blotches would transform into intricate landscapes. His influences. Ross dedicated the first episode of the second season of The Joy of Painting to Bill Alexander, explaining that, quote, years ago, Bill taught me this fantastic wet-on-wet wet technique, and I feel as though he gave me a precious gift and I'd like to share that gift with you, the viewer." End quote. As Ross's popularity grew, his relationship with Alexander became increasingly strained. Quote, he betrayed me, end quote. Alexander told the New York Times in 1991, quote, I invented wet on wet. I trained him, and he thinks he can do it better. End quote. 
historians have pointed out that the wet-on-wet or a la prima technique actually originated in Flanders during the 15th century and was used by Franz Hals, Diego Velasquez, Caravaggio, Paul Cezanne, John Singer Sargent, and Monet, among many others. Ross noted that the landscapes he painted typically mountains, lakes, snow, and log cabin scenes were strongly influenced by his years living in Alaska when he was stationed for the majority of his Air Force career. He repeatedly stated on the show his belief that everyone had inherent artistic talent and could become an accomplished artist given time, practice, and encouragement. And to this end, was often fond of saying, quote, We don't make mistakes. We just have happy accidents. End quote. In 2014, the blog 538 conducted a statistical analysis of the 381 episodes in which Ross painted live, concluding that 91% of Ross's paintings contained at least one tree, 44% included clouds, 39% included mountains, and 34% included mountain lakes. By his own estimation, Ross completed more than 30,000 paintings in his lifetime. His style Ross was well known for the catchphrases he used while painting, such as Happy Little Trees. In most episodes of The Joy of Painting, Ross would note that one of his favorite parts of painting was cleaning the brush. Specifically, he was fond of his method of drying off a brush that he had dipped in odorless.
first thinner by striking it against the thinner can, then striking a box or early seasons and a trash can for later seasons. Occasionally, you would strike the brush hard on the trash can and say he hit the bucket and easel. He would smile and often laugh aloud as he said to beat the devil out of it. He also used a palette that had been lightly sanded down, which was necessary to avoid catching the reflections of the strong studio lighting. When asked about his laid-back approach and his calm and contented demeanor, he commented, I got a letter from somebody here a while back and they said, Bob, everything in your world seems to be happy. That's for sure. That's why I paint. It's because I can create the kind of world that I want. And I can make this world as happy as I want it. Shoot. If you want bad stuff, watch the news. His other media appearances. Ross was a large fan of country music, and in 1987, he was invited on stage by Hank Snow at the Grand Old Opry in Nashville. The audience gave him a huge ovation. He was a little nervous at first, but felt better after cracking a joke to the crowd. Reportedly, Snow was later given a private painting lesson by Ross. Ross visited New York City to promote his hardcover book, The Best of the Joy of Painting with Bob Ross, and Painting Techniques to a studio audience several times. One visit in 1989, he appeared on the Joan Rivers show. He returned in 1992 for a live show with hosts Regis Philbin and Kathy Lee Gifford. There was one in 1994 when Phil Donahue watched his videos and loved his painting technique, invited him to the show to promote his work. Ross took five audience members on stage to do a painting, and even Phil himself did a painting and showed it in that episode. Ross at one time 
got an invitation to appear on Oprah, but declined because he wanted to do paintings for the audience, while the show wanted to focus on couples who are in business together but do not live together. In the early 1990s, Ross did several MTV promotional spots. According to the American City Business Journals, dovetailed perfectly with Generation X's burgeoning obsession with all things ironic and retro. His illness and death. Ross was diagnosed with lymphoma in the early 1990s, which eventually forced his retirement after the Joy of Painting's final episode aired on May 17, 1994. He died at the age of 52 on July 4, 1995. His remains are interred at Woodlawn Memorial Park in Gotha, Florida. His commemoration and pop culture. In 2000, a parody of Bob Ross was featured in the Family Guy episode Fifteen Minutes of Shame. Peter Griffin is watching the PBS show The Joy of Painting and supposedly following Bob Ross's instructions to paint a landscape. However, it is revealed he has painted the Keaton family from the NBC show Family Ties in a parody of that show's opening titles. In 2006, a character based on Ross was featured in the first season of The Boondocks in the episode Riley Was Here. Ross and his show were regularly featured on the British TV series Peep Show, where he was jokingly referred to as God by the characters. Google celebrated the 70th anniversary of his birth with a Google Doodle on October 29th, 2012. It portrayed Ross painting a depiction of the letter G with a landscape in the background. In November 2013, a character based on Ross was featured in the popular YouTube series Epic Rap Battles of History. The two-minute episode 
featured a rap battle between Bob Ross and Pablo Picasso. In 2015, Bob Ross was included in a commercial for HGTV Sherwin-Williams paint, along with Leonardo da Vinci, Andy Warhol, Michelangelo, and Vincent van Gogh. As part of the launch of Twitch Creative, Twitch TV hosted a nine-day marathon of Bob Ross's The Joy of Painting series, which started on October 29th, 2015, in commemoration of what would have been his 73rd birthday. Twitch reported that 5.6 million viewers watched the marathon and due to its popularity created a weekly rebroadcast with one season of The Joy of Painting to air on Twitch each Monday and will have a marathon of episodes each October 29th. A portion of the advertising revenue has been promised to charities, including St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. In June 2016, Ross's series, Beauty is Everywhere, was added to the Netflix lineup. The 30-minute episodes are very close in nature to the Joy of Painting series, minus the original few minutes for commercials. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia article titled Gilligan's Island. The first section is a summary of the TV show. Gilligan's Island is an American sitcom created and produced by Sherwood Schwartz via United Artists Television. The show had an ensemble cast that featured Bob Denver, Alan Hale Jr., Jim Backus, Natalie Schaefer, Russell Johnson, Tina Louise, and Don Wells. It aired for three seasons on the CBS network from September 26, 1964 to April 17, 1967. Gilligan's Island followed the comic adventures of seven castaways as they attempted to survive the island on which they'd been 
shipwrecked or stranded. Most episodes revolve around the dissimilar castaways conflicts and their unsuccessful attempts for whose failure Gilligan was frequently responsible to escape their plight. Gilligan's Island ran for a total of 98 episodes. The first season, consisting of 36 episodes, was filmed in black and white. These episodes were later colorized for syndication. The show's second and third seasons and the three television movie sequels were filmed in color. The show received solid ratings during its original run, then grew in popularity during decades of syndication, especially in the 1970s and 1980s when many markets ran the show in the late afternoon after school. Today, the title character of Gilligan is widely recognized as an American cultural icon. The next section is about the island. premise of the TV show is that a two-man crew of the charter boat SS Minnow and five passengers are on a three-hour tour from Honolulu and then run into a tropical storm and are shipwrecked on an uncharted island somewhere in the Pacific Ocean. The island was close enough to Hawaii to clearly pick up Hawaiian AM radio transmissions on a portable receiver. The location given in the series varies. In the first season episode, X marks the spot radio warns that the Air Force will test launch an armed missile to strike a location near 140 degrees latitude, 10 degrees longitude. Note, this is an impossible location. Latitude goes only up to 90 degrees, which is at the poles. The skipper calculates this as their island's location based on their starting point when the storm hit before they, quote, drifted for that three days with the prevailing western current, unquote, meaning the deadly missile will hit the island. Later in the first season, the episode, Big Man on Little 
chapstick has the professor giving the position S approximately 110 degrees longitude and 10 degrees latitude. In the third season episode, The Pigeon, the island is placed about 300 miles or 480 kilometers southeast of Honolulu. The next section is about the cast and the characters they played on the TV show. Bob Denver is Gilligan, the inept, accident-prone first mate, affectionately known as Little Buddy by the skipper of the SS Minnow. Bob Denver was not the first choice to play Gilligan. Actor Jerry Van Dyke was offered the role, but he turned it down, believing that the show would never be successful. He chose instead to play the lead in My Mother the Car, which premiered the following year and was canceled after one season. The producers looked to Bob Denver, the actor who had played Maynard G. Krebs, the goofy but lovable beatnik in The Many Loves of Toby Gillis. None of the show's episodes ever specified Gilligan's full name or clearly indicated whether Gilligan was the character's first name or his last. In the DVD collection, Sherwood Schwartz states that he preferred the full name of Willie Gilligan for the character. Denver, on various television and radio interviews, said that Gil Egan was his choice. The actor reasoned that because everyone yelled at the first mate, it ran together as Gilligan. In the unaired pilot episode, whether Lovey Howell refers to Gilligan as Stuart or Steward is unclear. On Rescue from Gilligan's Island, the writers artfully dodged Gilligan's full name when the other names are announced. Little is revealed about Gilligan's past, except his occasional reference to best friend Skinny Mulligan and a one-time reference to his older brother. Alan Hale Jr. is the skipper slash Captain Jonas Grumby, the captain of the SS Minnow. Alan Hale Jr. was a longtime actor in B-Westerns, 
and the lookalike son of Alan Hale Sr., a legendary movie character actor. Hale so loved his role that, long after the show went off the air, he still appeared in character in his Los Angeles restaurant, Alan Hale's Lobster Barrel. Although this skipper was a father figure to Gilligan, Hale was only 14 years older than Denver. Gilligan pushed the skipper out of the way of a loose depth charge when they were both serving in the United States Navy. Skipper is a World War II veteran and served in the Seventh Fleet. In one episode, he describes his participation in the Battle of Guadalcanal. In the episode, they're off and running. Ginger is reading from a horoscope magazine and asks the skipper his birthday, to which he responds, May 5th. In moments of exasperation, the skipper would swat Gilligan on the head with his cap. Just as often, the skipper endearingly called Gilligan Little Buddy, while everyone else called him Skipper. The Howells usually called him Captain. In addition, Hale wore his Skipper outfit when four other Gilligan Island cast members and he appeared on a few celebrity Family Feud shows. Jim Backus is Thurston Howell III, the millionaire. Backus was already a well-known character actor when he took the part. The origin of the super-rich Howell character dates back to 1949 radio, when Backus portrayed Hubert Updike III on the Alan Young show. Also, in the inaugural 1962-1963 season, episode 31 of the Beverly Hillbillies, Backus basically plays the same character, this time as the eccentric millionaire Martin von Rasselhoff. In the classic 1963 comedy, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Backus played another Howell-like character, Tyler Fitzgerald, a boozy and rich airplane owner who briefly gets caught up in the race for the stolen money. Backus was perhaps best known as the voice of cartoon character Mr. Magoo. He reused some of the voice inflections and mannerisms of Magoo in the Howell role. He was well known for his ad-libs on the set. 
character Howell was a Harvard graduate, a Republican, and a multi-billionaire until his losses in the Great Depression left him a multi-millionaire. Natalie Schaefer is Lovey Wentworth Howell, Thurston's wife, whom he affectionately called Lovey. Schaefer had it written into her contract that no close-ups would be made of her, but after a while in the series, it was forgotten. Schaefer was 63 when the pilot was shot, although reportedly no one on the set or in the cast knew her real age, and she refused to divulge it. Originally, she only accepted the role because the pilot was filmed on location in Hawaii. She looked at the job as nothing more than a free vacation, as she was convinced that a show this silly would never go. Tina Louise is Ginger Grant, the movie star. Louise clashed with producer Sherwood Schwartz because she believed that she was hired as the central character. Her character was originally written as a hard-nosed, sharp-tongued temptress, but Louise argued that this portrayal was too harsh and refused to play it as written. A compromise was reached. Louise agreed to play her as a Marilyn Monroe, Jane Mansfield type. Louise continued to clash with producers over her role and was the only cast member who refused to return for any of the post-series TV movies, saying that the role had killed her career as a serious actress. She did, however, appear in a reunion of the cast on a late-night television talk show in 1988 and on an episode of Roseanne in 1995 when the Roseanne cast reenacted Gilligan's Island. In the first season, Ginger often wore gowns that looked as if they were tailored from minnow, tarpaulins, or similar substitute cloth. Some had the name of the vessel stenciled on them. In the pilot episode, the character of Ginger, no last name, then a secretary, was played by actress Kit Smythe. Russell Johnson is Professor Roy Hinckley, Ph.D. Actor John Gabriel was originally cast, but the network thought he looked too young to have all the degrees attributed to the professor. Actually, 
The professor was in fact a high school science teacher, not a university professor. In the first episode, the radio announcer describes him as a research scientist and well-known scoutmaster. Johnson, who served as a bombardier in the Pacific during World War II, stated that he'd had some difficulty remembering his more technically-oriented lines. Originally, he was not interested in the role and was waiting for a TV show of his own, but his agent talked him into auditioning. He had done previous movies like It Came From Outer Space, This Island Earth, and a classic western where he shot Ronald Reagan in the shoulder. Johnson's role in the series was spoofed in a Bloom County comic strip for the professor's technical expertise being unable to get the castaways off the island. This odd contradiction was played up in Weird Al Yankovic's parody song, Isle Thing, when the professor, who is brilliant enough to, quote, make a nuclear reactor from a couple of coconuts, cannot build a lousy raft, unquote. In his autobiography, Here on Gilligan's Isle, Russell Johnson admitted the professor indeed, for all his smarts, could not build a boat, but despite popular beliefs stated in the aforementioned Bloom County Strip or the Weird Al parody song, firmly added the professor also did not build a nuclear reactor from coconuts, nor a satellite dish from clamshells. Don Wells is Marianne Summers. Wells was a former Miss Nevada when she auditioned for the role. Her competition included Raquel Welch and Pat Priest. The pilot episode had a different character, Bunny, played by actress Nancy McCarthy. After it was shot, the network decided to recast the roles of the professor and the two young women. Mary Ann became a simple farm girl from Winfield, Kansas. In 1993, Wells published Mary Ann's Gilligan's Island Cookbook with co-writers Ken Beck and Jim Clark, including a foreword by Bob Denver. In February 2007, she starred as Lovey Howell in Gilligan's Island the Musical, a musical stage adaptation of the TV show.
the next sections are about the first episodes and the last episode. The pilot episode, titled Marooned, was filmed in November 1963. On November 22nd, the day of the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the crew continued to work after hearing the shocking news. The pilot featured seven characters, as in the series, but only four of the characters and their associated actors were carried forward into the series, those being Gilligan by Denver, the Skipper by Hale, and the two Howells by Bacchus and Schaefer. As it happens, only these four characters slash actors were featured in the opening theme song cast list used in the pilot, with the remaining three characters only mentioned as the other tourists. Although the earlier part of the song gave brief descriptions of all passengers, due to the three significant character and casting changes, between the pilot episode and the first series episode, the pilot was not shown before the series first aired on September 26, 1964. The original pilot eventually aired over 29 years later on TBS October 16, 1992. The three characters who did not carry forward from the pilot were two secretaries and a high school teacher. In the pilot, the scientifically inclined professor was instead a high school teacher, played by John Gabriel. Ginger the movie star was still red-haired Ginger but worked as a secretary, played by Kit Smythe. Mary Ann, the Kansas farm girl, was instead Bunny, Ginger's co-worker, played as a cheerful, dumb blonde by Nancy McCarthy. The pilot's opening and ending songs were too similar. Calypso-style tracks written by John Williams and performed by Sherwood Schwartz impersonating singer Sir Lancelot. The lyrics of both were quite different from those of the TV series and the pilot's opening theme song was longer. The short scenes during his initial music include Gilligan taking the Howells' luggage to the boat before cast-off and Gilligan 
attempting to give a cup of coffee to the skipper during the storm that would ultimately maroon the boat. After the opening theme song and credits end, the pilot proper begins with the seven castaways waking up on the beached SS Minnow and continues with them performing various tasks, including exploring the island, attempting to fix the transmitter, building huts, and finding food. Contrary to some descriptions, the pilot's storylines contain no detailed accounts of the pilot character's backgrounds. The pilot concludes with the ending theme song and credits. The background music and even the laugh tracks of the pilot appear all but identical to those used during the series. The first episode actually broadcast, Two on a Raft, is sometimes wrongly referred to as the series pilot. This episode begins with the same scene of Gilligan and the skipper awakening on the boat as in the pilot, though slightly different cut to eliminate most shots of the departed actors, and continues with the characters sitting on the beach listening to a radio news report about their disappearance. No equivalent scene or background information is in the pilot, except for the description of the passengers in the original theme song. Rather than reshooting the rest of the pilot story for broadcast, the show just proceeded on. The plot thus skips over the topics of the pilot. The bulk of the episode tells of Gilligan and the skipper setting off on a raft to try to bring help, but unknowingly landing back on the other side of the same island. The scene with the radio report is one of two scenes that reveal the names of the skipper, Jonas Grumby, and the professor, Roy Inkley. The names are used in a similar radio report early in the series. The name Jonas Grumby appears nowhere else in the series except for an episode in which the Maritime Board of Review blames the skipper for the loss of the ship. The name Roy Hinckley is used one other time when Mr. Howell introduces the professor as Roy Huntley and the professor corrects him to which Mr. Howe replies, Brinkley, Brinkley. The plot for the pilot episode was eventually recycled into that season's Christmas episode, Birds Gotta Fly, Fish Gotta Talk, 
in which the story of the pilot episode concerning the practical problems on landing is related through a series of flashbacks. Footage featuring characters that had been recast was reshot using the current actors. For scenes including only Denver, Hale, Bacchus, and Schaefer, the original footage was reused. The last episode of the show, Gilligan the Goddess, aired on April 17, 1967, and ended just like the rest, with the castaways still stranded on the island. It was not known at the time that it would be the series finale, as a fourth season was expected, but then canceled. last section is about typical plots and themes of the series. The shipwrecked castaways desperately want to leave the remote island, and various opportunities are frequently presenting themselves. They typically fail owing to some bumbling error committed by Gilligan, with the notable exception of the Big Gold Strike, where everyone except Gilligan is responsible for their failed escape. Sometimes, this would result in Gilligan saving the others from some unforeseen flaw in their plan. Recurring elements center on one of five primary themes. The first theme deals with life on the island. A running gag is the castaway's ability to fashion a vast array of useful objects from bamboo and other local material. Some are simple, everyday things, while others are stretches of the imagination. Russell Johnson noted in his autobiography that the production crew enjoyed the challenge of building these props. Some bamboo items include framed huts with thatched grass sides and roofs, along with bamboo closets strong enough to withstand hurricane force winds and rain, the communal dining table and chairs, Pipes for Gilligan's hot water, a stethoscope, and a pedal-powered car. Many scenes occur at the dining table, where the castaways enjoy a large number of dishes that Ginger and Marianne prepare, while the radio provides news and entertainment. Gilligan and Skipper often catch fish and the island has citrus trees to avoid scurvy and a good supply of fresh water to drink and to prepare tropical drinks. Naturally, despite their obvious skill and inventiveness, 
the castaways never quite managed to put together a functional raft out of bamboo, or repair the holes in the minnow, though the entire ship fell apart in the eighth episode, Goodbye Island. In the television movie, Rescue from Gilligan's Island, the castaways tie all their huts together and use that as a raft for escape. The second theme involves visitors to the uncharted island. One challenge to a viewer's suspension of disbelief is the remarkable frequency with which the island is visited by an assortment of people who repeatedly fail to assist the castaways in leaving the island. Some have hidden motives for not aiding the castaways. Others are simply unable to help, are incompetent, or are foiled in their efforts to help by Gilligan's bumbling. Gilligan, Ginger, and Mr. Owl each had feature episodes in which lookalikes visit the island were, of course, played by the actors in dual roles. The island itself is also home to an unusual assortment of animal life, some native, some visiting. The third recurring theme is the use of dream sequences in which one of the castaways dreams he or she is some character related to that week's storyline. All of the castaways appeared as other characters within the dream. In later interviews and memoirs, nearly all of the actors stated that the dream episodes were among their personal favorites. The fourth recurring theme is a piece of news concerning the castaways arriving from the outside world that causes discord among them. Then a second piece of news arrives that says the first was incorrect. An exception to the latter part of the statement is the episode, The Postman Cometh, where Gilligan and the skipper hear over the radio that Marianne's boyfriend eloped and the three single men try to cheer her up by wooing her. Marianne actually lied about having a boyfriend and she created a romance with a real creep so that the others would think she had someone waiting for her back home. The fifth and the last recurring theme is the appearance or arrival of strange objects, like a World War II mine, a crate of radioactive vegetable seeds, or a Mars rover that the scientists back in the USA think is sending them pictures of Mars. 
and in one episode, a meteorite. The following are select sections from the Wikipedia articles titled Black Mirror and also List of Black Mirror Episodes. I'll start with an overview about the TV show. Black Mirror is a British science fiction anthology television series. It examines modern society, particularly with regard to the unanticipated consequences of new technologies. Episodes are standalone, usually set in an alternative present or the near future, often with a dark and satirical tone, though some are more experimental and lighter. The show premiered on the British television channel, Channel 4, on December 2011 and was later purchased by Netflix in September 2015. Black Mirror was inspired by older anthology shows like The Twilight Zone, which were able to deal with controversial contemporary topics without fear of censorship. Brooker developed Black Mirror to highlight topics related to humanity's relationship to technology, creating stories that feature, quote, the way we live now and the way we might be living in ten minutes' time if we're clumsy, end quote. Two episodes titled San Junipero from the third season and USS Callister from the fourth season won a total of five Emmy Awards with both episodes winning Outstanding Television Movie. The next section is about the conception and the style of Black Mirror. Charlie Brooker had completed production of Dead Set, a zombie-based drama series, and while working on Newswipe and other programs, had decided that he wanted to make another drama series in an anthology style like The Twilight Zone, Tales of the Unexpected, and Hammer House of Horror. Brooker recognized that Rod Serling had written episodes of The Twilight Zone using contemporary issues, often controversial, such as racism, but placing them in fictional settings so as to get around television censors at the time. Brooker realized he could do similar commentary on modern issues, and specifically focusing on mankind's dependency on technology 
something he encountered while producing the series, How TV Ruined Your Life. Brooker pulled the series title from this approach. Quote, If technology is a drug, and it does feel like a drug, then what precisely are the side effects? This area between delight and discomfort is where Black Mirror, my new drama series, is set. The Black Mirror of the title is the one you'll find on every wall, on every desk, in the palm of every hand. The cold, shiny screen of a TV, a monitor, a smartphone, end quote. Brooker wanted to keep the anthology approach, using new stories, settings, characters, and actors for each episode, as he felt this approach was a key element of enjoying shows like The Twilight Zone. He said, quote, There was a signature tone to the stories, the same dark chocolate coating, but the filling was always a surprise. End quote. This approach would allow Black Mirror to contrast with current dramas and serials that had a standard recurring cast. According to Brooker, the production team considered giving the series a linking theme or presenter, but ultimately it was decided not to do so. Quote, There were discussions. Do we set them all in the same street? Do we have some characters who appear in each episode? We did think about having a character who introduces them, Tales from the Crypt style, or like Rod Serling, or Alfred Hitchcock, or Roald Dahl, because most anthology shows did have that, but the more we thought about it, we thought it was a bit weird, end quote. While the production does not use linking elements, the show has included allusions and Easter eggs from previous episodes into later ones. Knowing that fans of the show have dissected some of the details by watching the episodes frame by frame, Brooker and his team have included humorous jabs at these fans through printed messages on various props, such as a paragraph in a news article held up by a character directed to fans of the show on Reddit in the episode titled Crocodile. The next section focuses on the behind-the-scenes information about the first four seasons and the upcoming fifth season. 
a press release described the series as, quote, a hybrid of The Twilight Zone and Tales of the Unexpected, which taps into our contemporary unease about our modern world, end quote, with the stories having a techno-paranoia feel. Channel 4 described the first episode titled The National Anthem as quote, a twisted parable for the Twitter age end quote. A trailer for the second series featured three interspersed storylines a dream sequence the repetitive factory setting and the huge dust cloud that sweeps through the street at the ad's climactic end. In March 2016, Netflix outbid Channel 4 for the rights to distributing the third series with a bid of $40 million. This marked the first time that an online streaming service had gained the right to a show where the original network had wished to renew it. In developing the third series stories, Parker had looked back to the first two series and the Christmas special and recognized that all the stories were about characters becoming trapped in a situation that they couldn't escape from. Coupled with the anthology format that asked for viewers to get immersed within the stories to understand the nature of each, this created a sense of darkness and horror, which can make it difficult to watch successive episodes without becoming uncomfortable. With the third series, Booker wanted to explore different formats still having a few of those trap episodes, but adding more conventional stories like a romance and police procedural, making the new series more digestible for the viewer. According to Brooker, the fourth series has even more variety in the episodes than in previous series. Brooker says that there is some more hope in the series. Crediting this to the fact that writing began in July 2016 and continued throughout the 2016 United States election. And, quote, I genuinely thought, I don't know what state the world's going to be in by the time these episodes appear and I don't know how much appetite there will be for nothing but bleak nihilism. End quote. The series features an episode story conceived by Penn Jillette, an episode directed by Jodie Foster, an episode starring Rosemary DeWitt, and an episode filmed in Iceland, and another with an overtly comedic tone, the one titled USS Callister.
according to Engadget and Gizmodo, as a means of viral marketing, Netflix sent private messages to users of a Turkish website. The messages were sent from the account I am Waldo and read, quote, We know what you're up to. Watch and see what we will do. End quote. Though the advertising was met with positive reception from some users, others were critical of distress that the messages may have caused. The fifth season is expected to release in December 2018 and will include one episode that will be interactive, letting the viewer make a choice of which action the protagonist should take next. The following section is about episodes that sort of predicted the future. Journalists have reported that some of the concepts in Black Mirror have come true in fashion within the real world and have called the show a magic eight ball for the future. The first episode, titled The National Anthem, revolves around the British Prime Minister being blackmailed into having relations with a farm animal. In September 2015, four years after the episode air, allegations were published that David Cameron, who at the time was British Prime Minister, had done something sort of similar as part of a university initiation rite. Brooker has called the event a, quote, coincidence, albeit a quite bizarre one, end quote, and was quite perturbed when he first heard the allegations. Quote, I did genuinely for a moment wonder if reality was a simulation, whether it exists only to trick me, end quote, he said in an interview. Several news reports compared Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign to the episode titled The Waldo Moment, a 2013 episode in the second series. Later, in September 2016, Brooker also compared the Trump campaign to the episode and predicted Trump would win the 2016 election. The third series episode, titled Nosedive, presented a social rating-based system that several found mirrored by China's proposed social credit system. Brooker has been quite surprised to see how some of these events had come to pass. Quote, it was quite trippy, though. I'm kind of getting used to it, because it seems like it's quite often that there are things that are in the stories that come true, end quote. 
days after the release of this Series 4 episode titled Crocodile, which included a self-driving pizza delivery truck as a major plot device. Toyota and Pizza Hut announced the e-pallet, a driverless delivery vehicle, at the 2018 Consumer Electronics Show. The conceptual vehicle drew numerous comparisons with its fictional counterpart, and the official Twitter account for Black Mirror commented on the announcement saying, We know how this goes. For this last section, I'm going to read you small summaries of some of the episodes, and they'll just be like the beginning of each summary, so they won't be spoilers. I'm not going to ruin any of the episodes for you. In fact, I'll be leaving out some of the plot twists that make the episode so interesting. So when you hear this, my very short and not so exciting description, just make sure to think to yourself, what might be the unintended consequence of the beginning of this plot? All right. Season 1. Here's a short description of the first episode. Princess Susanna, a member of the British royal family, has been kidnapped. To return the princess, the kidnapper demands that the country's prime minister, Michael Callow, has relations with a farm animal on live television. Otherwise, there will be unfortunate consequences. Here's a teaser for the third episode in the first season. People have implanted a crane behind their ear which allows them to record everything they see and hear. Using a remote, a user can perform a redo, playing back their memories directly to the eye or to a video monitor. Here's a teaser for the first episode in the second season. Ash lives with his girlfriend, Martha, spending a lot of time on social media until one day he passes away in a traffic accident. A few days later, Martha finds out she's pregnant and decides to use a new technology that is able to simulate Ash's voice and personality on the phone based on his social media profile and other audiovisual material. Here is a teaser for the second episode 
in the second season. A woman wakes up in a house with amnesia. She notices people on the street recording her on their phones, but when she speaks to them, they ignore her. Here's a teaser for the first episode in the third season. Using eye implants and mobile devices, people rate their online and in-person interactions on a five-star scale. This system cultivates insincere relationships as a person's rating significantly affects their socioeconomic status. Here's a teaser for Episode 3 in the third season. Kind 19-year-old Kenny downloads an anti-malware program to fix his infected laptop. Unbeknownst to him, the program activates his laptop camera, which records him doing something very personal. Here's a teaser for the fifth episode in the third season. Soldiers are exterminating mutated humans called roaches in a foreign country using a neural implant which enhances their senses and provides instant data by augmented reality. When a soldier encounters several aggressive roaches, one of them uses a mysterious device. Here's a teaser for the sixth episode in the third season. Counteract a drop in the United Kingdom's bee population. Granular has developed a robotic bees known as ADIs. Detectives Karen Park and Blue Colson, together with the help of NCA agent Sean Lee, discover that hacked ADIs have caused the deaths of two people by getting inside their heads and causing unbearable pain. Here's a teaser for the first episode in the fourth season. And this is the one that I recommend you start with if you want to. It's titled USS Callister. And here's the short summary. Robert Daly a reclusive but gifted programmer and co-founder of a popular, massive multiplayer online game, is embittered by the lack of recognition for his work. He has created a mock Star Trek-like simulation on a private server, using DNA from his co-workers to create sentient digital clones of them, serving under himself their abusive captain of the starship, USS Callister. The next teaser is for the second episode in 
season four. Marie briefly loses track of her three-year-old daughter, Sarah, and decides to have her implanted with the Archangel system, allowing Marie to use a tablet to track her, monitor her health and emotional state, and even censor sights she doesn't want Sarah to see. The next teaser is for the fourth episode in season four. Frank and Amy are two of several that participate in the system where they are instructed by a personal device called the coach to meet other people and spend a predetermined amount of time with them. The next teaser is for episode five in the fourth season. Robotic guard dogs have turned against humans, leaving the few human survivors to fend for themselves. And the last teaser I'll share is from the sixth episode in season four. Nish stops to recharge her car and enters the nearby Black Museum, owned and run by Rolo Haynes. Rolo shows her various artifacts, all related to illicit technology. History of YouTube was founded by Chad Hurley, Steve Chen, and Jawad Kareem. At the time, they all worked for PayPal. Prior to working for PayPal, Hurley studied design at the Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Chen and Kareem studied computer science together at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. YouTube's initial headquarters was situated above a pizzeria and Japanese restaurant in San Mateo California. The domain name YouTube.com was activated on February 14th, 2005. Video upload options were integrated on April 23rd. 2005. The first YouTube video titled Me at the Zoo was uploaded on April 23rd, 2005, and it shows co-founder Jawad Kareem at the San Diego Zoo. 
YouTube began as an angel-funded enterprise from a makeshift office in a garage. In November 2005, venture firm Sequoia Capital invested an initial $3.5 million. Additionally, Rolov Botha, a partner of the firm and former CFO of PayPal, joined the YouTube Board of Directors. In April 2006, Sequoia and Artist Capital Management invested an additional $8 million into the company, which had experienced hugely popular growth within its first few months. The next section focuses on the growth of YouTube in 2006. During the summer of 2006, YouTube was one of the fastest growing sites on the web, with more than 65,000 new videos uploaded and delivering 100 million video views per day in July. It was ranked the fifth most popular website on Alexa, far outpacing even MySpace's rate of growth. The website averaged nearly 20 million visitors per month, according to Nielsen Net Ratings, with around 44% female and 56% male visitors. The 12 to 17 year old age group was dominant. YouTube's preeminence in the online market was substantial. According to the website hitwise.com, YouTube commanded up to 64% of the UK online video market. YouTube entered into a marketing and advertising partnership with NBC in June 2006. The next section focuses on the purchase of YouTube by Google which also occurred in 2006. On October 9th, 2006, it was announced that the company would be purchased by Google for 1.65 billion US dollars in stock. The purchase agreement between Google and YouTube came after YouTube presented three agreements with media companies 
in an attempt to escape the threat of copyright infringement lawsuits. YouTube planned to continue operating independently with its co-founders and 67 employees working within Google. The deal to acquire YouTube was completed on November 13th. At that time, it was Google's second largest acquisition. Google's SEC filing on February 7th, 2007, revealed the breakdown of profits for YouTube investors after the sale to Google. At the time of reporting, Chad Hurley's profit was more than $395 million, while Steve Chen's profit was more than $326 million. The next section focuses on YouTube being announced as the person of the year, also in 2006. Time magazine featured a YouTube screen with a large mirror as its annual person of the year. Citing user-created media such as that posted on YouTube and featuring the site's originators along with several content creators. The Wall Street Journal and New York Times have also reviewed posted contents on YouTube and its effects upon corporate communications and recruitment in 2006. PC World Magazine named YouTube the ninth of the top ten best products of 2006. In 2007, both Sports Illustrated and Dime Magazine featured stellar reviews of a basketball highlight video titled The Ultimate Pistol Pete Maravich MIX. The next section focuses on the continued growth of YouTube, which occurred between 2007 and 2013. It is estimated that in 2007, YouTube consumed as much bandwidth as the entire internet in 2000. Originating in 2007, the YouTube Awards are annual awards given out in recognition 
of the best YouTube videos of the preceding year as voted by the YouTube community. On July 23, 2007 and November 28, 2007, CNN and YouTube produced televised presidential debates in which Democratic and Republican U.S. presidential hopefuls fielded questions submitted through YouTube. In November 2008, YouTube reached an agreement with MGM, Lionsgate Entertainment, and CBS, allowing the companies to post full-length films and television episodes on the site, accompanied by advertisements in a section for U.S. viewers called Shows. The move was intended to create competition with websites such as Hulu, which features material from NBC, Fox, and Disney. YouTube was awarded a 2008 Peabody Award and cited as being a speaker's corner that both embodies and promotes democracy. In early 2009, YouTube registered the domain www.youtube-nocookie.com for videos embedded on United States federal government websites. In November of the same year, YouTube launched a version of Shows available to UK viewers, offering around 4,000 full-length shows from more than 60 partners. Entertainment Weekly placed YouTube on its end-of-the-decade best-of list in December 2009, describing it as providing a safe home for piano-playing cats, celeb goof-ups, and overzealous lip-syncers since 2005. In January 2010, YouTube introduced an online film rental service, which is currently available only to users in the U.S., Canada, and the U.K. The service offers over 6,000 films. In March 2010, YouTube began free streaming of certain content of the Indian Premier League. According to YouTube, this was the first worldwide free online broadcast 
of a major sporting event. In March 31st, 2010, YouTube launched a new design with the aim of simplifying the interface and increasing the time users spend on the site. Google Product Manager Shiva Rajaman commented, We really felt like we needed to step back and remove the clutter. In May 2010, it was reported that YouTube was serving more than 2 billion videos a day, which was nearly double the primetime audience of all three major U.S. television networks combined. In May 2011, YouTube reported on the company blog that the site was receiving more than 3 billion views per day. In January 2012, YouTube stated that the figure had increased to 4 billion videos streamed per day. According to May 2010 data, published by market research company Comscore, YouTube was the dominant provider of online video in the United States, with a market share of roughly 43% and more than 14 billion videos viewed during May. In October 2010, Hurley announced that he would be stepping down as the chief executive officer of YouTube to take an advisory role, with Salar Kamanjar taking over as the head of the company. James Zern, a YouTube software engineer, revealed in April 2011 that 30% of videos accounted for 99% of views on the site. During November 2011, the Google Plus social networking site was integrated directly with YouTube and the Chrome web browser, allowing YouTube videos to be viewed from within the Google Plus interface. In December 2011, YouTube launched a new version of the site interface with the video channels displayed in a central column on the home page, similar to the news feeds of social networking sites. At the same time, a new version of the YouTube logo was introduced with a darker shade of red, which was the first change in design since October 2006. In 2012, YouTube said that roughly 60 hours of new videos are uploaded to the site every minute, 
and that around three-quarters of the material comes from outside the U.S. The site has 800 million unique users a month. Starting from 2010 and continuing to the present, Alexa ranked YouTube as the third most visited website on the Internet after Google and Facebook. In late 2011 and early 2012, YouTube launched over 100 premium or original channels. It was reported the initiative cost a hundred million dollars. Two years later, in November 2013, it was documented that the landing page of the original channels became a 404 error page. Despite this, original channels such as SourceFed and Crash Course were able to become successful. In October 2012, for the first time ever, YouTube offered a live stream of the U.S. presidential debate and partnered with ABC News to do so. On October 25th, 2012, the YouTube slogan, Broadcast Yourself, was taken down due to the live stream of the U.S. presidential debate. YouTube relaunched its design and layout on December 4th, 2012 to be very similar to the mobile and tablet app version of the site. On December 21st, 2012, Gangnam Style became the first YouTube video to surpass 1 billion views. In March 2013, the number of unique users visiting YouTube every month reached 1 billion. In the same year, YouTube continued to reach out to mainstream media, launching YouTube Comedy Week and the YouTube Music Awards. Both events were met with negative to mixed reception. In November 2013, YouTube's own YouTube channel had surpassed PewDiePie's channel to become the most subscribed channel on the website. This was due to auto-suggesting new users to subscribe to the channel upon registration. The next section is about the internationalization of YouTube. 
on June 19th, 2007, Google CEO Eric Schmidt was in Paris to launch the new localization system. The interface of the website is available with localized versions in 89 countries, one territory, Hong Kong, and a worldwide version. Google aims to compete with local video sharing websites like Dailymotion in France. It also made an agreement with local television stations like M6 and France televisions to legally broadcast video content. On October 17, 2007, it was announced that a Hong Kong version had been launched. YouTube's Steve Chen said its next target will be Taiwan. YouTube was blocked from mainland China from October 18th due to the censorship of the Taiwanese flag. URLs to YouTube were redirected to China's own search engine, Baidu. It was subsequently unblocked on October 31st. The YouTube interface suggests which local version should be chosen on the basis of the IP address of the user. In some cases, the message, this video is not available in your country, may appear because of copyright restrictions or inappropriate content. The interface of the YouTube website is available in 76 language versions including Amharic, Albanian, Armenian, Bengali, Burmese, Khmer, Kyrgyz, Laotian, Mongolian, Persian, and Uzbek, which did not have local channel versions. Access to YouTube was blocked in Turkey between 2008 and 2010, following controversy over the posting of videos deemed insulting to Mustafa Kemal Ataturk and some material offensive to Muslims. In October 2012, a local version of YouTube was launched in Turkey with the domain youtube.com.tr. The local version is subject to the content regulations found in Turkish law. In March 2009, a dispute between YouTube and the British Royalty Collection Agency PRS for Music led to premium music videos being blocked for YouTube users in the United Kingdom. The removal of 
the videos posted by the major record companies occurred after failure to reach agreement on a licensing deal. The dispute was resolved in September 2009. In April 2009, a similar dispute led to the removal of premium music videos for users in Germany. The next section is about the business model, advertising, and profits of YouTube. Before being purchased by Google, YouTube declared that its business model was advertising-based, making $15 million per month. Google does not provide detailed figures for YouTube's running costs and YouTube's revenues in 2007 were noted as not material in a regulatory filing. In June 2008, a Forbes magazine article projected the 2008 revenue at $200 million, noting progress in advertising sales. Some industry commentators have speculated that YouTube's running costs specifically the bandwidth required, may be as high as five to six million dollars per month, thereby fueling criticisms that the company, like many internet startups, did not have a viably implemented business model. Advertisements were launched on the site beginning in March 2006. In April, YouTube started using Google AdSense. YouTube subsequently stopped using AdSense, but has resumed in local regions. Advertising is YouTube's central mechanism for gaining revenue. This issue has also been taken up in scientific analysis. Don Tapscott and Anthony D. Williams argue in their book, Wikonomics, that YouTube is an example for an economy that is based on mass collaboration and makes use of the internet. Whether your business is closer to Boeing or PG or more like YouTube or Flickr. There are vast pools of external talent that you can tap with the right approach. Companies that adopt these models can drive important changes in their industries and rewrite the rules of competition. New business models for open content will not come from traditional media establishments, but from companies such as Google, 
Yahoo, and YouTube. This new generation of companies is not burned by the legacies that inhibit the publishing incumbents, so they can be much more agile in responding to customer demands. More important, they understand that you don't need to control the quantity and destiny of bits if they can provide compelling venues in which people build communities around sharing and remixing content. Free content is just the lure on which they layer revenue from advertising and premium services. Tapscott and Williams argue that it is important for new media companies to find ways to make a profit with the help of beer-produced content. The new internet economy that they term economics would be based on the principles of openness, peering, sharing, and acting globally. Companies could make use of these principles in order to gain profit with the help of Web 2.0 applications. Companies can design and assemble products with their customers, and in some cases, customers can do the majority of the value creation. Tapscott and Williams argue that the outcome will be an economic democracy. There are other views in the debate that agree with Tapscott and Williams that it is increasingly based on harnessing open source slash content, networking, sharing, and peering, but they argue that the result is not an economic democracy, but a subtle form and deepening of exploitation in which labor costs are reduced by internet-based global outsourcing. The second view is, for example, taken by Christian Fuchs in his book Internet and Society. He argues that YouTube is an example of a business model that is based on combining the gift with the commodity. The first is free. The second yields profit. The novel aspect of this business strategy is that it combines what seems at first to be different, the gift and the commodity. YouTube would give free access to its users. The more users, the more profit it can potentially make, because it can, in principle, increase advertisement rates and will gain further interest of advertisers. YouTube would sell its audience that it gains 
by free access to it to advertising customers. Commodified internet spaces are always profit-oriented, but the goods they provide are not necessarily exchange value and market-oriented. In some cases, such as Google, Yahoo, MySpace, YouTube, Netscape, free goods or platforms are provided as gifts in order to drive up the number of users so that high advertisement rates can be charged in order to achieve profit. In June 2009, Business Week reported that, according to San Francisco-based IT consulting company RampRate, YouTube was far closer to profitability than previous reports, including the April 2009 projection by investment bank Credit Suisse estimating YouTube would lose as much as $470 million in 2009. Ramp rates report pegged that number at no more than $174 million. In May 2013, YouTube launched a pilot program to begin offering some content providers the ability to charge $0.99 cents per month or more for certain channels, but the vast majority of its videos would remain free to view. This concludes the Whisperpedia episode. I hope you are deeply relaxed, or even better, deeply asleep. Good night.